All right, Joshua, I want you to close your eyes, relax, and go to your safe place. Tell me, where are you now? I'm in the writer's nook, Doctor. And where is that? It's where written words speak. Tell me, Joshua, how long have you been hearing these voices? Hello, everyone. Again, this is The Writer's Nook. I'm Caleb Chandler. I'm here with my patient and co-host, Josh. Hello. <laughs> Creeping me out there. Today we'll be looking at three stories, one written by myself and two written by some of my classmates here at the Master's College. And we'll also be, for next episode, opening it up to submissions from listeners like you. So if you want to email us at thewritersnookpodcast at gmail.com, go ahead and do that. Questions, stories, poems, doesn't matter. And after the stories, we'll be rounding off the show with a question and answer session with Professor Bob Dixon, who teaches a lot of the writing classes here at the college. So stay tuned for that. Before we get started on this first story, I want to give a little bit of introduction, especially because I wrote it. This is an exploration of the theme or the feeling of alienation. I mean, that's a fun time, right? The story follows the life of a protagonist who's been in isolation for a very long time until one day something inexplicably changes. So, without further ado, for the next six minutes, here's Visiting Hours. Hope you like it. They said no visitors. They said I wasn't ready. They said it wasn't safe. Then again, they know best. But then, on day 2192, they changed their minds, not that they ever told me so. Maybe one of them disagreed and didn't tell the others. I really couldn't say. It's not my place to. Anyway, they know best. Whatever the case, day 2192 is when Harriet first came. I didn't remember the last time I'd had a proper conversation. I only knew it had been at least 2,193 days ago. The next several days would be very different. I could tell as soon as she spoke. Hello, she said. Nothing remarkable about that. That's how most people start conversations, from what I remembered. Hello, I said back. My name's Harriet. My name is Eddington. So that's how it's going to be, eh? No first name? That's fine. You don't have to tell me. Did they send you? I go where I like. My name is Toby. Well then, who is this Toby? What does he do? They said no visitors. I go where I like. I wanted to come here. Did they let you in? You didn't answer my question. I read sometimes, when they let me. When I behave, I get to. What do you read? I read a lot of things, but I like kids' books best. Sometimes I read fantasy, too. And why is that? It's personal. All right, I won't pry. Thanks. Of course, Harriet smiled. It looked funny. The corners of her mouth went up and she showed her teeth. They looked clean, not like mine. They had stopped letting me brush mine when I had made my gums bleed too much. That was okay. They know best. I don't like Hemingway, though. Oh? And why's that? He writes well, but it's too sad. His stories are sad, but I think he's a good writer. I can't argue with that. I wouldn't stop you if you did. Thanks. She smiled again. I like smiles. I had forgotten about that. They never smiled. 
I don't know why, but I'm sure they had a good reason. It's almost time for dinner, I said. I think you'd better go. All right. It was nice meeting you, Toby, Harriet said. It was nice meeting you, too. Will you be coming back? I expect so. The man didn't say anything when he brought the food. Either they had let her in after all, or they didn't know. They may know best, but they don't know everything. She came back the next day. I wasn't expecting that. She came earlier that day, and we talked about all sorts of things. Books, life, death, aliens, shoelaces. She didn't seem to mind, which was nice because some of it was weird and didn't make much sense. She left at dinner time again and agreed to visit soon. And she did visit again, for a hundred days straight. We kept talking about whatever we felt like. We'd play guessing games, and sometimes we played pranks. One time she told me to hide behind the door when the man came to collect the food. I spilled my rice on his head. He didn't like that very much. I know because he kicked me in the shin. Harriet laughed, though, so I guess it was worth it. We waited a while before the next prank. That time I threw my soup bowl at the man. He shouted a lot that time, and one of the doctors wiped the soup off his face and took him away. It was a good two minutes before Harriet could stop laughing that time. I think the man must have quit. The next day, it was a different man who brought the food, and there was no hot soup. They took the books, too. The doctors asked me questions. They asked why I threw the soup. I shouldn't have told them about Harriet, but I panicked. They told me I needed a shot. I don't know what for, but they know best. Harriet didn't like that they gave me the shot. At least, that's the best I can figure. She stopped visiting after that. I tried talking to the new man with the food about aliens, but he didn't like it. Eventually, they switched from shots to pills. I'm not sure why, but they know best. They gave me my books back then. I stuck to the kids' books for a while. 800 days later, they let me go home. I'm not sure why, but they know best. They helped me get a job. I liked it a lot. I hadn't seen Harriet for a long time. I think she was mad about the pills. When summer came, I met someone. Her name was Sylvia. She worked at the same place I did. She made a deal with me. If I paid for dinner, she'd talk to me about dragons, aliens, toothpicks. It didn't matter. It was nice. I liked talking, even though she fell asleep sometimes when I explained how the dragons could breathe fire. But one week, things changed. She didn't want to talk about the aliens anymore. She said she was tired of it. I suggested we eat somewhere else, but she said it was no good. Sylvia and my boss were dating now, whatever that meant, and I couldn't talk about the aliens again. I asked why a few days later. I never got to find out, though, because the boss handed me some papers and told me to go away. I asked if he wanted to talk about aliens, but he said no. He said no one at work did, and I should go home. I went home for the next few days, but the landlord made me leave after a month. I ran out of pills a couple of weeks ago. Turns out I was right about Harriet not liking them, because she came back. We talked about racehorses and how the moon moves the waves, but then she asked me about the books again. Why do you prefer the kids' books, Toby? Harriet asked, smiling. I like the endings. I do too, Toby. Alright, as I said before the story aired, that was Visiting Hours. I hope you liked it. I hope you listened to it. I hope you didn't just skip to this point. Otherwise, you make me kind of sad. Well, I suppose it can't be helped at this point.
Anyway, this next story is a rather humorous personal anecdote by Kyle Shannon called Besting the Bull, recounting an experience he had at a summer camp growing up. I hope you enjoy the next four and a half minutes, and I'll see you on the other side. Something no one seems to mention about college is how it makes you look back on some of the flashiest, most spectacular things you or your parents ever bought for you and realize what a waste of money they were. Before facing the towering monolith that is college tuition, I never thought of the heaps of video games I'd acquired over the years, or the packs of cards I used to beg my parents for as particularly frivolous. But chief among these in my mind are the five years I went to Christian summer camp. Each one had cost me or my parents hundreds of dollars, and yet, as I look back on them, I realize that the myriad of sermons and devotions had a minimal spiritual effect on me. Hardly any of the friendships I made lasted after camp. And most of what happened to me during those week-long adventures were either forgettable, unpleasant, or simply okay. And yet, one triumphal moment stands above the rest, showing that perhaps the bucketfuls of money my parents and I hurled at these little excursions were at least somewhat well spent. My moment of triumph began, as many great instances do, by getting emotional and doing something impulsive. It was towards the middle of my last time at camp, and I was walking back to my room after evening chapel. Instead of dwelling on the message I had just heard, I chose to meditate on how closely the girl I had been interested in was walking next to my best friend, or how next to him I seemed practically invisible to her. Now, normally I could shrug such feelings of jealousy aside, but combine this with my lack of sleep, volatile hormones, and the emotional vulnerability commonly found at Christian camp, and I was having a bit of a bad time. After an embarrassingly emotional phone call with my mother, and a melancholy visit to my room, I took a walk down to the field where a miniature fair of sorts was being held that night. There was popcorn, an inflatable obstacle course, foam jousting, far less pleasant than it sounds, and a mechanical bowl. Being in the emotionally charged state I was in, yet sober-minded enough to remember that I'd likely damage more than just my pride if I lost in jousting, I joined the massive line to test my luck with the bowl. As the line crawled along, I engaged in what I usually do when I'm bored analyzing the living daylights out of something. In this case, I chose to be practical and study the other high schoolers as they rode the bowl. And what I saw was decidedly less than encouraging. All but the most athletic and pig-headedly stubborn gorillas were thrown off in no time at all. Being the bundle of bamboo I was, I was surely done for. Yet as I continued to analyze the numerous attempts and failures, I discovered a pattern. Everyone used the same strategy. Grip as tight as you can and don't move. They were like gargoyles carved into the roof of a chapel, resolute, unmoving, endlessly determined. That is, for the first few seconds. All the operator had to do was spin the bull around a few times, and momentum would do the rest, almost without fail sending the helpless rider off the saddle and onto the inflatable floor below. And yet no one seemed to notice. Perhaps if they moved their hips and torso properly, they could counter the jerking and spinning motions of the bull and keep their head and shoulders in about the same spot the entire time preventing momentum from shoving them off. After all, I remember hearing somewhere that if you control the head, you control the body. Eventually, it was my turn. Sheepishly, I walked into the graciously soft arena and onto my opponent's contraption. I constricted my legs around the bull's cold, hard body, closed my eyes so I wouldn't become nauseous or panic-stricken, and the fight began. The bull jerked every which way, and had I played the part of the gargoyle, I would have been a goner. Instead, I was the bamboo. And like any good bamboo shaft, I would bend and sway, yet never be uprooted. Once the operator knew I was serious, he took drastic measures. 
The bowl began to spin. I could feel myself slip a couple of times, but somehow I didn't fall. Instead, I twisted and pivoted my body in a sort of antithesis to the mechanical animal, my head nearly fixed in place. I'm not sure what I looked like at that moment, but I'm guessing not as glorious as I felt. Eventually, the operator gave up so the others in line could give it a try. After my victory, the congratulations were minimal, few if any of my friends had seen, and those I related the story to later tend to be politely apathetic. And yet for the remainder of the fair, I would occasionally glance back at the bull. And each time, I caught sight not of a temporarily steadfast gargoyle, but a shaft of bamboo swaying to and fro in the breeze. Well, I hope you've been enjoying the show so far. This last story is by Amanda Wilkinson, and it's a sci-fi story called The Hum of Life, in which a refugee starts hearing this mysterious humming noise in her head. It's about eight minutes long, and after that, we will be having our writing tips with Professor Bob Dixon, so please stay tuned for that. Without further ado, here's the story. The Hum of Life by Amanda Wilkinson Read by Sean Merrill Not a single whimper or whine was heard from the children. There were not enough cots or mats to go around, but it was though, for the first time in their short lives, a blanket of security had come around them and lulled them to sleep. Mary felt the hush of their small, slumbering outfit and looked on with contentment, an alien sensation to the members of her body. She pulled her knees into her chest and peered out at the distant blue and white profile of their intended destination. Would their native planet ever feel like home to them? She was certain that even if they never arrived, they are better off suspended in space than they were in the Malayan's experimental projects. A sudden pang in her stomach forced her to suck in a breath, serving as an ominous reminder. Midge? Joey peered back at her from the cockpit. Yeah, she said. She was holding her breath, waiting for the pain to subside. You okay? I'm fine. You sure? Mary slowly released a long breath. <sighs> yes, now I am. He threw another skeptical glance over her shoulder before facing forward. Mary turned her attention to the puny plant again and watched it as she listened to the vague humming coming from inside her. Initially, she'd abhorred the sound. But slowly, she noticed a certain musical quality to it. There was a dynamism to it that left her torn between wonder and disgust. What are you thinking about? Joey asked. Do you think there's anything left? She lied. He turned his head towards Earth, giving her a distinct view of his strong profile against the dark backdrop of outer space. I couldn't say, he answered. She studied the back of his tawny head for a moment and then peered at the sleeping kids. Give me a best and worst case scenario, she said. I'm not playing that game with you again, Midge. It worked, didn't it? What worked? You got us to the best case scenario. So far, Joey turned his face away. She watched his jaw muscle contract beneath the dim lighting of the control panels. She stood up and tiptoed between sleeping children. Stepping up into the cockpit, she stood behind his chair and wrapped her arms around his neck. She felt his shoulders rise and fall with a deep breath. Joey, we've already made it. She swallowed a lump in her throat. We've already arrived. Simply escaping was a victory. We've lost so many, he spoke. They didn't intend to keep any of us, Joey. You and I and them. 
She turned so as to involve the children with her gaze. We are the last generation. Her eyes looked from one adolescent face to the next. Somehow, she and Joey were the oldest survivors. She was back in captivity, trapped beneath their greedy red receptors. They were poking and prodding, and there was nothing she could do but attempt to escape mentally. And still, there was that nagging, menacing pain at her center. Everything was black, except that place inside her which burned with red. She woke up feeling as though her torso was on fire. Her eyelids refused to open. Tight bonds kept her hands in place. A weight sat on her legs, preventing her from writhing. All around her, she heard voices, but she could not focus on them to tell if they were human. And there was the ever-present hum, which are now suspended in a new key, perhaps a minor key. Joey, she said, weakly at first, as though testing to see if she could even speak. When no response came, she tried again, louder. Joey! She shouted. The boy. She's asking for the boy. She heard someone say. Another wave of excruciating pain swept through her body, and she let out a scream. I'm here, Midge. She heard his voice before she noticed his cool hands on either side of her face. Joey! She cried breathlessly. Where am I? What's going on? We are at sort of a speed bump in our best case scenario. She could hear a note of fear in his voice. We made it to Earth? She asked. She felt one of his hands leave, and then a cool towel came across her face. We made it, he said. What's wrong with me? They're removing the parasite. It seems to have had a few defense mechanisms they weren't expecting. Is one of them fire? She began to cry again, wishing it would all be over. Hey, we've already come so far. Don't give up on me now, he said. She felt him plant a kiss on her forehead, and despite the pain, she smiled. Suddenly, the humming turned to shrieking, and she tilted her head to the side, trying to protect at least one ear. That's not a pleasant sight or sound, she heard Joey yell. You can hear it too, she exclaimed. Mary, a female voice was speaking to her now. We were able to extract the organism. We are going to put you under so we can clean up some of your insides and stitch you back up. Okay? Where's Joey? She asked. He'll be here when you wake up. Okay. Slowly, a cool sensation trickled into her veins, starting in her arm. The pain in her stomach subsided, and her consciousness of the table against her back faded away. Joey's words played over and over again in her mind. We made it, he had said. With a smile on her lips, she drifted off to sleep about the size of two cupped hands, a small pudgy center, pale mossy flesh, two red receptors, which she likened to the eyes of a fly now that she was back on Earth. In shape, the organism almost resembled a baby, but every horrid memory of it and its origin prevented her from having any positive feelings towards it. What will you do with it? Mary asked. Study it. Try to understand it. The scientist shrugged. Mary tried to suppress the shiver that came with the memory of being someone else's case study. But it's dead for sure, right? Oh, yeah. The little guy died as soon as we disconnected it from its life source. You, the scientist said with a chuckle. She felt Joey's grip on her hand tighten. You ready to go? He asked. 
She looked up at him and nodded. Thank you for your time, sir, Joey said as he extended a hand towards the man. Sorry, have to avoid cross-contamination, he said, holding up a gloved hand. Joey retracted his own. Thank you, Mary said as she began to tug Joey away. As they walked down a long corridor, she let out a little giggle. Sometimes, I think a little spaceship of human refugees knew more about being human than people who actually grew up on Earth, she stated. He slowed so he could plant a kiss on her forehead. They were near the exit when familiar humming filled her ears. It was quiet and dull, but undeniable. Joey, she said, slowing to a stop. His eyebrows lifted in question. Do you hear that? Hear what? he asked. She peered into his green eyes for a long second. Nothing. Never mind, she said. They walked out of the facility, hand in hand. I'm here with Professor Bob Dixon, chair of the communication department at the Master's College, who teaches most of the writing courses at the school. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Now, first off, um, I have some questions that my uh, co-host wrote up that I uh, thought the audience might want answered, too. When it comes to storytelling, what are some good techniques for creating suspense to make sure the reader doesn't say, oh, this is boring, I'm just leaving? I think the first thing you, you want to do if you're trying to create suspense in a, in a piece of fiction is you have to establish who your point of view character is. Because suspense doesn't happen in a vacuum. It needs to or needs to happen to a character. So you create a character that, it doesn't take a long time, but you have to get your, your reader to identify at least a little bit with the character. Something's gotta happen to a character. And then what creates the suspense is the characters care enough about what is or isn't gonna happen to this character. So I think that's a mistake that a lot of young writers make is they have a great idea for a suspenseful, say, intro to an opening scene, uh, to a story, but they don't, established really much about the character yet so we don't really don't really care it becomes sort of a gimmick uh, and going off of that um what are some like small things details or whatever it takes to make sure that they do care about your character well people don't care about characters that don't seem real that aren't relatable so things that make a character not seem real would be lack of imperfections for example a character that that has a nervous tick, a character that speaks out of the side of his mouth, a character that that isn't isn't a cliche. Those things those things matter. A character that cares about something himself. Who's not going to like a character who, who in the opening scene is is playing with a puppy? You know, <laughs> like that. No, oh, yeah, good point. Going off some of the themes that come up in some of the stories in this episode, what? Do you think is a good way to be portraying someone who's supposed to be crazy, or at least the world thinks he's crazy, or whatever the case may be? How do you kind of convey that sense of madness? Huh, that's a good question. Conveying madness in a character really comes down to playing with the reader's expectations. If a character's behaving in a way that essentially defies convention, you could technically define that as madness. Uh, so from that perspective, you can almost do anything. I mean, you, it doesn't have to be clinical madness. If you look at the, now I'm going to call my my old English major days here, but if you look at, say, like the Victorian era writers, they, re, they really explored madness, like Melville with Captain Ahab or Bartleby the Scribner. Two different examples of characters that are what we would probably call shell-shocked, but 
behaving in, in ways that are inexplicable, but for different reasons, and it exhibits and it shows itself in different ways. Uh, what about Edgar Allan Poe in a Telltale Heart? What's inexplicable in his behavior are his motives. So just whether it's motives or actions or interactions with other characters, take a character and have that character do things the reader just can't explain rationally, and they will the reader will will could define that as as a, as a madness. You mentioned specifically Ahab. What do you think about that specific character? What was done really well as far as the madness angle? Just the obsession. You could, and it's been argued that that's really more of a heroic quality that he's undaunted. But one does one does not being daunted descend into madness when that pursuit is not just going to lead to your own demise, but everybody else's demise. I mean, they have his whole crew, and they all know it, and they have nowhere to go. You know, that, that sort of thing. They, they are caught up in his undaunted pursuit of the, of the white whale, so so much that they, they are trapped in this boat, and so that becomes very symbolic. So that Melville does really well, and just he, he refuses to be reasoned with about, about it. The other example, since we're on Melville, was a short story, I don't know if if you read it, but it's called Bartleby the Scrivener, and, and really what you have is a character who he simply refuses to do anything. You know, he gets a job, and his boss asks him to do something, and he, say, he says, I would prefer not to. And, he, and, and, he, and he's very disconnected from society, and, and I don't want to spoil the story, but his madness is, is based on his exposure to the sadness of society, and, and he just becomes isolated. And his, so his madness... From his, from his perspective, it isn't madness, but from the perspective of everybody who's trying to interact with him, he's crazy. You know, doing it, he, he, it's, you don't say that to your boss if you want to keep your job. So the two different ways to do it by the same author uh, that, that I think worked really, both worked really well. All right, and another question um, we had, just because it does come up a lot, is what is it, in part, I think, about happy endings that half the time they're like, oh, happy endings are bad art kind of a thing, or... Some people think, you know, happy endings have to be earned. What do you think it takes to make for a good story that can have a happy ending? Maybe I'm old-fashioned. I, I like happy endings. I don't have any problems with happy endings. I don't, I don't think you have to, to leave your reader dissatisfied with, with the outcome in order to be shown to be a sophisticated writer. Uh, but it is very fashionable these days. By these days, I mean even the last 25 years, but it's fashionable to leave a lot of unanswered questions in fiction and maybe that you can define that as unhappy as, as an unhappy or, or an unresolved conflict those types of things because it really de- goes back to what you're trying to accomplish in your fiction I, I like thematic storytelling I think there's no way to get around it I think your worldview is going to spill over into your writing and there, there will be themes running through it either way but I've always leaned as a writer and as a teacher of writing toward tell a good story I mean just spin a good yarn Write something that's going to want, make your readers want to turn the page. And if the result of that is that you satisfy them with a, with a resolved ending, a happy ending, good for you. It doesn't make your art any less sophisticated. You're not living on, this, on, the, on the first floor and the, and, the, and the unhappy artistic endings, quote-unquote artistic endings, are living on the, in the penthouse. It, it isn't like that. So I, I, I have no problem with, uh, with happy endings. I, I like Frank Capra movies, you know. I, I, li- I like to walk out of a theater or cl- close a book and say, wow, that was, that was worth it. And I, I, don't mind, I don't mind reading a story that doesn't resolve and I'm left to think about it. You know, we've talked mm. about this in class. I like that too, but, but I don't think a happy ending is, a, is, a, is taking a back seat artistically at all. 
In this episode of the podcast, we've had stories that are either first-person or third-person narration. What do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of each? I mean, obviously a short answer for that, but... And also, what do you prefer when you write, or what do you prefer to see or read? Well, with first-person, the, the obvious advantage is that you, as the writer, get to bring the reader right into the mind of your point-of-view character. It's a very intimate you can have a lot of fun letting the reader, number one, know what their point of view character is thinking, but also allowing the reader to be suspicious of whether or not they can even trust the narrator because that there's a layering involved in that, like uh, Mark Twain in, in uh, Huck Finn or something. That, that's part of the delight of reading that is understanding that the, the point of view character isn't seeing things even as clearly as you, the reader, are. And so that, that becomes very fun to do. The third person though it depends on how you do it third person omniscient is you know kind of the, the fly on the wall or the, the camera hovering above and just sees everything and of course from a writer's perspective you really are unlimited you can you can do anything but i found that especially young writers limits are helpful like if you don't have any limits you you tend to not be able to control your story what i like what i prefer or, or at least what i recommend students when they're getting going is uh, on a story is unless they're really married to the idea of first person and I love first person and, and, and they have a real reason to use it, go with the third person. And if you want to get us inside the character somewhat, if you want it more intimate, go third person close, that real limited omniscience. So you're, you're still, it's not first person, but you still can take the camera, so to speak, inside the mind of the character. As the narrator, you can say that, that you know, John felt anger Maybe I wouldn't write us as clumsily as that, but you know you can you you, you yeah. can do that. The fun part about third person limited is that, or third person is at all is that you can pull the camera back and forth. You can you can go third person limited up close, and then you can pull it out and be third person in a broader sense, and you can even move that around. First person, if you're going to start in first person, unless you have a hard break in your story, you can't really. You got to stick with it. Readers resent when you break the rule. You know, they, if, they, if they're inside the mind of a character, they want, they want to stay there. You can, though, chapter by chapter in a book, have different first-person points of view. I've seen that, and it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. Well, I hope some of those tips were helpful. If they weren't, uh, don't blame us. <laughs> yeah, blame me. <laughs> the Writer's Nook is protected under a Creative Commons license. Be a friend, and don't pretend you wrote our stuff.